Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back for another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Men, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My next guest is someone who has definitely smashed a few ceilings in her industry. As she did it, she had to navigate a massive emotional trauma and the impact that had on her mental health and her family, which we'll get to. Her name is Georgia Cohn. Georgia is a writer and producer who currently works for the BBC, making BBC News podcasts. She got her big break as a digital journalism apprentice at the BBC and has had amazing support during her journey through the John Schofield Trust Mentor Scheme. Georgia's journalism journey, grief, working class pride, self-care and the importance of perseverance are all on the menu. This is how our check-in went. Georgia, welcome to the Just Checking In Pod Pal. I'm very, very pleased to have you on. I can't believe we didn't do this sooner, to be honest. For the listeners, we work together, but I've never actually seen you in the office, in our building, despite the fact I've been there for a year and a half, which just goes to show you that not everyone who works where we are actually sees each other at all. First off, how are you? How are you managing with everything that's going on right now? I understand you've had a, a much-needed digital detox recently. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Do you know what? It's been interesting. I think after everything that's happened with lockdown and you know having to change the way that we're working and we're living, it's been quite interesting. And I've had negatives, I've had positives, but... I think that it's kind of something that we had to adapt to quite quickly. And I felt that recently I kind of had a bit of time off social media and had some time off as well because I felt like a lot had happened in such a short period of time and you don't really have a moment to reflect on it because straight away we're not normal, but things are starting to get back to normal. And I guess well, you're still trying to adapt to a way of life that is very different from what it was before. So I feel like in the last few weeks, I've taken that time. I mentioned to you that just coming off social media for two weeks actually is such a good idea. Like I recommend it to everyone. It's something that when the world is so busy and so many things are going on around you, sometimes you just need that moment to just go, right, okay, I'm not going to focus on what everyone else is doing on Instagram I'm not going to focus on because I find that Instagram is really difficult for when you are thinking of overthinking personal things or you're overthinking that you're not going out enough or you're not seeing enough people you're not doing all this amazing stuff so for me professionally is really difficult because like you're seeing people do these amazing stuff and you're like oh wow that's amazing and you're so proud of them and you're like wow this is great but you're also thinking oh my God, I should probably be doing more or I should be doing this or I should be doing that, which can be quite toxic social media spaces. And sometimes you just need that time to take a step back and realise that there's more to life than just social media. So yeah, I found that really beneficial to just take that time. 100%. And if it wasn't for then, I'd probably have taken a lot of stuff off social media as well. Right, we've got all that lovely stuff out of the way. Shall we just get started? The best place to start, Georgia, is with your career in journalism. So why don't you tell the listeners why you became inspired to be a journalist, how you got into the industry. I understand you were doing interviews from a young age with your family members and pets. Is that right? Yes. How did you know that? 
<laughs> do my research. Yes. So when I was about seven years old, I think I must have been about seven, six or seven, my mum had a cassette tape recorder and I used to go around and record my own little radio shows. So I'd go around and interview family members or I'd go and interview my guinea pig. Obviously, that wasn't the most riveting interview of all time. But, you know, I'd make this little show for myself and I'd go around making songs and doing little interviews. And basically, Radio 1, watch out because I tell you what, it was next level production. But for me, I think when I look back, it's probably something that I was always kind of meant to do because I feel like I was really passionate. I loved radio from a very young age. I loved listening to the radio. I loved the fact that you could have music and talking and put it all together. And it was just this really engaging format. And I think I've always been quite passionate about it. And I'm really passionate about stories as well and storytelling. I was really into creative writing when I was younger. And I think there's elements of that that in journalism is really important, you know, to be able to tell a story, to be able to engage with people and tell their stories in the right way. It's such an important skill to have. Looking back, I was probably always meant to do it in a sense. I think it was always something that I wanted to do or inside of myself, I felt like I could do. But I didn't really know a lot about journalism when I was younger. I remember from quite a young age, I had this idea in my head. I can't even tell you what the first job I wanted to do was. I think it was probably like a vet or something. You know, those generic jobs that you want to do when you're younger. I say generic, obviously vet is a really important job, but I definitely could never do that because I wasn't smart enough in school, if I'm honest with you. But there was those jobs that you kind of wanted when you were younger. And then obviously as you get older, you start to think about what you really want to do with your life. I think it was probably high school where I realised actually I really want to go into journalism. I used to make these little pretend newspapers where I would write little stories and I think it was part of some creative media course that I was doing at the time in my GCSE years and I used to write these little newspapers and come up with stories I really liked that element of it and the creative element as well and I started to realize as time went on that that was something I was really interested in initially was the writing I was interested in but as I got older I realized actually I really want to do something in the creative space so when I was in school I felt like I wasn't very academic but looking back it was probably just the fact that I didn't have the right opportunities I think opportunities are always the thing that allows you to get to basically it allows you to reach your best potential and I think when I was in school I really struggled with the exams and I really struggled with just lots of different elements of school really I didn't have the best school experience that unfortunately led to me not doing very well in my GCSEs so I got my five basic GCSEs but I felt like I could have done a lot better I went down the path of trying A levels and did the first year and actually had to drop it because I just couldn't do the exams I wasn't very good at the exams and I realized that actually it wasn't really for me that's when I decided to take up this creative media course which did journalism and it was the reason I was drawn to it really because I saw that one of the units included journalism and honestly without that course I don't know if I'd ever be in journalism because that was the foundation blocks and it gave me the passion and the inspiration and for the first time in my life I had tutors and teachers who really believed in me and saw potential in me and were like okay you need to get into this industry this is something that you're obviously great at and I think basically to have people that are very passionate about what they're doing and want to kind of see you succeed 
I think is so important and really teachers I just think are amazing people because they have the power to be able to put you on that path and give you the confidence to go into that industry so for me those two years were just amazing and I felt like I learned so much from that that's how I got into it initially and found out that it was something that I wanted to do long term and I'm just so glad that I got myself on that pathway really. Your route into the industry itself came in the form of an apprenticeship scheme which I'm sure is a route that not many people might know about and then you did some work experience at BBC Radio 3 Counties whilst you were trying to break in as well. What were those experiences like looking back and do you want to just tell the listeners about how these non-traditional routes can actually be really good and a powerful tool to breaking into the industry basically? I had never heard of the BBC Apprenticeship. I mean my year I think it'd only been going for a few years really so it wasn't something that it'd been going for some time but it was relatively new. I tried to go to university so after I finished my my college course the last year of my college course I went through quite a big moment in my life and had been through quite a significant bereavement what that meant was that I rushed into going to university when actually potentially it wasn't the best move for me at the time hindsight's a great thing looking back I think actually I could have taken a step back and been like okay I don't think this is the right thing for me to do at the moment but I went and I think I went maybe because there were external pressures or there was something in me that was saying I need to do this part of it was actually because I assumed you needed a degree to work in journalism and that almost forced me to go and to do it actually really wasn't a great time for me to be away from home to not have that support system and to start something brand new at a time that my life had already changed quite drastically I went to university had to drop out after a year and I ended up going into digital marketing so I ended up getting a few jobs, working for local companies, designing their websites, writing their copy, that type of thing. And actually, I realised this is not where my passion is. Journalism is still something that I really want to do. And I assumed because I hadn't got the degree, I was like, there's no way it's going to happen. I just almost felt defeated by it because I knew that potentially I was never going to be able to do what I wanted to do. I got some work experience. Well, I ended up having an interview on the radio. So one of the presenters at Free Counties Radio sent me a message after he'd read one of my blog posts and he said can you come on my show and and talk about it and I was like yeah of course I'd love to and that was my first radio interview I'd never done anything like that before so I was petrified but really wanted to do it and I went on there and afterwards he went you know what you know a lot about the area you know you have a lot of connection you know a lot about what's going on he said you can come and do some work experience for us and so I ended up speaking to one of the news editors that work there and she said yeah try online so I applied for the two weeks of work experience absolutely loved it when I say I loved it I was ready after the two weeks to handcuff myself to the desk and be like I'm not leaving basically I'm not leaving this place because I want to work here so much I just loved it and then after that I had a few freelance shifts and then conveniently the apprenticeship came up and the editor at Free County said to me I know you don't have a journalism qualification she said but if you apply for this apprenticeship you're going to get your NCTJ you're going to get your experience and you're going to be working for us for 22 months straight away I was like yes I'm interested in this I really want to do this because I knew that I needed the NCTJ to be taken seriously I guess as a journalist in the industry because although you don't need a degree obviously you need your media law you need to be able to basically you need to have an understanding of what you're doing as a journalist the different elements to it I was really passionate about it really wanted to get involved in it and I ended up applying for it and I think 
a lot of people applied that year. It was 2016 cohort. So a lot of people applied and then they chose seven of us. We were based all across the country. So we were based in local radio from like up north to south. And obviously I was in the Luton area. Yeah, I just absolutely loved it. I know a lot of people, they want to work in network. That's their big thing is they want to work the big parts of BBC, don't they? So they want to work for like six and 10 o'clock news or they want to work for like the big names. And I always say to people, the best place for you to start would probably be local radio because the opportunities that you get, the fact that there is all these people that have amazing levels of experience and are able to really take that time to train you up and to help you and support you, that is the best place for you to start because you learn so much from that experience. And I think and anyone that asks me how to get into journalism, I'm like, get in touch with your local BBC radio station or get in touch with one of your community radio stations because that is the best place to get the skills that you need to work in radio, TV, any type of journalism industry I think. You got onto the apprenticeship or the the digital journalism apprenticeship I should say at the BBC. Some people have labelled journalism as an elitist industry due to the way it can favour those who live at home whilst they pay their dues and make their big breaks. The high percentage of journalists from private school backgrounds and the massive expense that are journalism master degrees which are many people's route in. What are some of the challenges you faced as you were starting out and in your present day career as you're very proudly working class and you are maybe an exception to the rule but what can you tell the listeners about how it doesn't have to be as much of an outlier if that makes sense yeah I think there is like a lot of the media industry there is this assumption that it is quite elitist and I think that the apprenticeships and the trainee schemes have been really helpful in making sure that more diversity is brought into the industry and people from backgrounds like myself are still able to get in without degrees or masters and those types of people I guess I come from a working class family. You know, I live in an area that is predominantly working class. There are not as many opportunities to get into the industry where I live compared to if you're from London or from those kind of metropolitan areas. That is so important because it's something that I think people started to recognise. And obviously with the apprenticeships that have been running for quite a few years, there are people from all backgrounds. I know from my year, all of us were from different parts of the country. We didn't have degrees because obviously you shouldn't have a degree when you go onto the apprenticeship. But there's there's so many diverse young talented people that come through the schemes actually that is so important because when you're creating content for people all across the UK people they're not going to have the same stories they're not going to have the same life experiences and actually to have those people in the newsroom and to have people making that content who have experienced the same life or have the same experiences as people from working class backgrounds or people from different areas or different parts of the country. That's really important, I think, because how can you reflect that audience when no one in the newsroom truly understands what it is to be that person? doesn't understand what it is to live that life I think representation is so important in journalism and I think it's getting a lot better and I think it's because of those types of schemes that are bringing in young people who are not from traditional backgrounds or not I say you know traditional for journalism anyway it's just really important that that continues because to bring in those people is probably the only way to really show that diversity and get those people through the door because 
that for me anyway from what I've seen is from the JTS schemes the journalism trainee schemes that the BBC also runs which are very similar to the apprenticeships but a lot of people on JTS will have a degree or some kind of existing qualification but they come into the BBC through that from what I've seen it brings so much to the organisation and I think it's just so important that those people be at the table and be able to be included in in creating not just news but just content on a day to day basis. I've mentioned it in the intro, but do you want to talk about the John Schofield Trust and the impact that's had on your career as you've made your way in the BBC? As I'm sure many other journalists from working class, disadvantaged or ethnic minority backgrounds, it's been a great influence for them. And what have you learned through that mentorship and the kind of skills that you've gained from it, I guess? The John Schofield scheme, I can't sing its praises enough. I think it's an absolutely amazing scheme. So it was set up, a young journalist called John Schofield was working for the BBC and unfortunately died whilst he was working on the story. It's been set up by his wife. So they set up the charity to support young journalists. So the idea of the scheme is they set it up so that young journalists can get support from someone else in the industry who has many, many years of experience. So the idea is you match much more experienced journalists journalists to uh, entry-level journalists who maybe don't have as much experience, have only been in the industry maybe for a year or two. They've opened it up to apprentices now. So if you're on an apprenticeship scheme, you can apply and you can get a mentor. So the idea is that you're matched with someone for a year and that person is really just your go-to for any questions that you have about the journalism industry, about where you should be, what moves you should be making, decisions that you might have to think about during the early stages of your career. I was matched with a guy called Simon Vigar who works at Channel 5, so he's a correspondent. He is just, honestly, Simon is the best in the biz. I'm slightly biased because he was my mentor. Uh, I truly believe that I would not be where I am right now without that scheme and without his mentorship because... He was just so helpful to me in the early stages of my career. I had just finished my apprenticeship when I got onto the John Schofield mentoring scheme. And I had a decision to make where I had to, or I was offered a staff contract in local radio. And then at the same time, I was offered a three month placement to go and work on what is now Beyond Today, Radio 4 podcast. So I'd worked on the pilot for that at the end of my apprenticeship. And they asked me to come back and work on it full time. I was given the options of, here's a staff contract so you don't know what a staff contract is basically just a permanent contract at the BBC which is sometimes quite difficult to get and then the option of a three-month contract in London I didn't know whether it was going to be extended at that point I just knew that at the very moment I was being offered a three-month contract everyone was saying to me oh yeah you're being offered a staff contract in local you're probably not going to get the opportunity again it's going to be really difficult and then on the other hand a few people were saying to me, well, it's in London, this job, like it's a great opportunity to help you kind of excel in your career and you're going to be able to move up and be able to do something different. I was really stuck between those two options and wondering, actually, was I making the right decision? Because I was gravitating towards going with the London job. But at the same time, another part of me was like, don't be silly. You have to take this really stable opportunity. To have Simon, who has obviously got so many years of experience in the industry, has worked for other organisations as well and I think that's a great thing as well they match you to people that aren't in your organisation sometimes it can be difficult to speak to someone who is either part of your team or part of your organisation because they might see things differently 
oh, maybe they see them too similar. They'll give you advice that you're almost like, okay, that's what I'm thinking about anyway at the moment. To have someone who's outside your organisation, they don't care about the politics, they don't care about what's happening, they just want to help you excel in your career. He was just so helpful in those early stages when I had that big decision to make. And he just turned around to me and said, you know, you're probably not going to get this opportunity all the time. And this is something that at the moment you are in a position that you can do it. Because at that time, obviously, I was still living at home. I wasn't in a position where I was having to pay out for a mortgage. Obviously, I don't have children. I don't have those commitments that would have meant that taking that short term contract, maybe it would have been a more difficult decision to make. And so we went, yeah, just go for it. I truly think you should just take this opportunity. If I hadn't had him supporting me and really given me that push, I don't think I would have had the confidence to be able to go with that. I'm forever grateful for him because just within that year, I had two job changes. So I had these two massive decisions to make and he was there the whole time and just giving me support and advice. And I just think to have that at such an early stage in your career, as I say, I definitely don't think I would be where I am today without him. The whole point is to increase and support diversity as well because you're supporting young people in the industry who don't have connections they don't have family members or friends or people that they know who are in the industry so actually to have someone who is matched to you who can support you through those initial stages of your career is so valuable and yeah I recommend everyone apply for it because it's just such an amazing scheme Let's talk about the work you do at the BBC now. For the listeners, why don't you tell them about the issues you cover, some of the most important or favourite stories that have meant a lot to you self-esteem-wise or mental health-wise, and conversely, maybe some of the challenging stories which have had maybe a negative impact on your mental health or, or just taken you out of your comfort zone. So I have been working in podcasting now for two years. When I moved from local, I moved to Radio 4. So I was working on a podcast called Beyond Today. It was a daily podcast. And then about seven months in, I then decided to take a job promotion working on a podcast called The Next Episode. Brand new podcast. I started, basically, I fell into podcasting, which people often say to me, oh, how did you get into it? And how do you get into that type of industry? I have to admit to them, well, actually, I fell into it and it was was almost like being in the right place at the right time really because when I was working on the pilot for Beyond Today I had literally never listened to a podcast before which is really really quite something isn't it really but I'd never listened to one before I was working on that podcast and when I worked on the pilot obviously I listened to lots of different podcasts to get an idea of how this new pod would sound and the production values and how we would edit it and what we would do to make it sound the best it could be that was really where my love of podcasting came from because of that opportunity and that initial movement into the industry because previously I'd been more on the digital and radio side so it was quite interesting to go into something that was more long form where you have the opportunity to really unpack a story because you've got you know most of the time it's like a 20-30 minute podcast where you can really delve into these issues so since I've been in podcasting there's so many stories that I've really felt passionate about and really really I'm proud of I'm really proud of because a lot of the podcasts that I've done so for example when I was at Beyond Today I did an episode called How Did a Town Beat Extremism the idea was that I think it was the 10 year anniversary of the disputes between and the issues between the EDL and the Al Mahjaroon who were like an extremist Islamic group in the Luton area they were having these 
arguments between each other and it was very heated at the time you know I was in school so I was in my last year doing my GCSEs and then you would always hear about these demonstrations that were going on in the town and people arguing and fighting between each other so I did this podcast which is basically looking back on what happened in that time and what had happened since and kind of for the 10 year anniversary how the town had changed in that time because I'm very proud to come from the place that I come from we've also got Stacey Dooley who was and still is a massive influence to me in my career and really put Luton on the map her documentary that she made about the issues I remember that coming out on BBC Three at the time um, and it was a really successful documentary and lots of people watched it and had an understanding of what was happening at that time so I was really proud of that because I felt like it was this opportunity to show how Luton had changed since then because I feel like people still when they hear the word Luton just jump to the worst case scenario and think about how awful it is and it's like oh no it's this and it's that and it's such a depressing place and actually it's not it's got this amazing community and there's so many people who really make it what it is today so I was really proud of that and to be able to go to my hometown and talk to all these people who I'd already made connections with anyway when I was at local radio and to really have that opportunity to tell the story of my town and how I saw Luton rather than the bad negative press that had got in the years previous so you know I was really really proud of that I've done a few things on mental health as well but the one that I'm probably most proud of is the episode that we did for the next episode which was at the beginning of this year so I decided that I wanted to do something on the inpatient experience so what young people were dealing with when they go into inpatient facilities I found out about this hospital in Middlesbrough that there appeared to be a lot going on there. There was unfortunately two deaths in a very short period of time. There was a Facebook group and a lot of parents talking about the issues that they'd had and the worries. And it was something that I was just really, really interested in. Obviously, for me, I'm very keen to get out of London, especially with our podcast the next episode. We were aiming it towards working class, basically communities outside of London, you know, people outside of the metropolitan bubble. You would say I guess the idea was that we wanted to talk about communities and places that often aren't represented or aren't spoken about in mainstream media the idea was that I said right okay so I put in an FOI request to find out about the number of deaths that had happened in the last five years from young people in inpatient facilities that was our top line and then the idea was we wanted to delve a little bit deeper into this particular hospital in Middlesbrough and find out the stories behind the people that died there so obviously really basically quite an emotional story really from the get-go and the moment that I realised I wanted to do it I had to say to myself right okay you have to treat it with utmost respect and really have an understanding of what these families might be going through because you just can't underestimate how difficult it must be to be be going through what those families were going through and I think as a journalist you need to have that empathy and that understanding for people and really when you speak to them it's so important to just build that relationship and I think for me I started to build that relationship quite early on so I made sure that I was like speaking to people on Facebook I was having conversations with them on the phone I was really building up that connection with families I felt just very privileged that basically wanted to speak to me and they were happy to tell their story to me because I think it must be so difficult when you're opening up and talking about something so personal and you're talking 
in a very public place about that. I can only imagine that it's really difficult. So I started to build up a relationship with these families over a couple of months. And then we decided to just go to Middlesbrough. So my colleague and I just went to Middlesbrough, did all these recordings, booked to go and interview people and speak to different people. I'm really, really proud of it because I think it's actually set a standard for the rest of my career, really, in the sense that I realised how important it is and, and how privileged we are as journalists to be able to tell someone's story. So we end up telling the story of this particular young woman who died while she was at this inpatient facility. And we talk about who she was as a person and her family really gives us an idea of her struggles through her mental health problems. You know, looking back on it, I realised that it's just such a privilege to be able to talk to people and, and for them to open up about what they've been through and what their family members have been through as well and I think I realise now that it's something that afterwards you almost feel like okay I need to make sure that every time I'm doing this I'm kind of setting myself to the same standard I'm making sure that I'm really telling people stories in a way that their families are going to appreciate that and they're going to feel comfortable with it and that for me is the greatest accomplishment is not how many times something's been shared or how many times or if it's been featured here or if it's been featured there it's more are the families happy with it afterwards? Like, Are the people that were involved in it happy with it? I was in a position where the families afterwards, you know, really felt like it showcased their stories in a way that they felt comfortable with and that they were happy with. And just finally, Georgia, what objectives or dreams do you have in journalism going forward? And for any aspiring journalists who might be tuning into this pod, pal, what advice or message would you give them from your experience? I think the advice that I would give to any young person that wants to go into journalism is really just find out what it is that you want to do in terms of whether that's writing, whether that's broadcast, what areas, you know, you might want to go into radio, you might want to go into TV, um, you might want to do them all. You know, there's some people that do want to do multi-platform journalism and are really interested in all elements of telling a story on different platforms. But what I would say is find people or make connections with people that you know are in the industry and have either achieved great things or have lots of connections or will have a basically time to almost like mentor you or not like as an unofficial mentor, I guess, be able to kind of help you uh, succeed in what you want to do. So I say to people all the time, reach out to people on social media or drop them a message on LinkedIn or try and connect with lots of different people so that you can get a better understanding of how to get into the industry and what opportunities there might be. Because most of the opportunities that I've had are because I've made a connection with someone and then they've said to me, oh, actually, there's this job available or there's this opportunity. Why don't you go for it? Making connections with people. Although, as I say, I didn't know anyone in the industry before I started working in it. Do you know what I mean? I didn't have any family members. I didn't have any friends that worked there. So that is really difficult because there is that concern that you might not be able to connect with people or people might see your message and be like oh no I'm not going to answer that because I don't know that person or whatever but actually most people in the industry are really willing to help and really want to see you succeed so they're going to try and support you and try and help you and give you advice in the best way possible so yeah that's the advice that I would give is 
reach out to people, make connections, get experience, whether that's writing your own blog, making your own YouTube videos, making content from home, basically. Really show that you're passionate about telling stories and you're really passionate about getting into the industry. I would say it's more about what you're doing than what you're saying. So put those actions to paper and really make something from it as well. We've talked about your journalism journey. I want to go into a bit more detail about your own journey now, Georgia. So you grew up in Dunstable. Let's talk about now your early life and your teenage years. You wrote an article on your website, which was really illuminating for me doing the research for this pod. You wrote about getting into journalism and the background of your sort of GCSEs and your A-levels. And I'll pick out a couple of quotes here because I think they're really, really interesting for the listeners. And you can go read the full article if you want. I'll put a link in the description of the pod. So the first one you said, I wasn't traditionally academic in school and I don't think many of my teachers thought I'd make anything of myself. I was the quiet and slightly strange girl at the back of the classroom who'd rather daydream whilst looking out of the window and read another chapter of an inspector calls. The truth is I didn't really fit in. I wasn't even one of those teenagers who'd say they were misfits but were actually really cool and mysterious with their box dyed hair and facial piercings. I was actually painfully uncool. You also said something that really stood out to me. You said I'd learned it was better to keep quiet and be undetectable as not to draw too much attention. Children can be cruel sometimes, and I learned the hard way in middle school. Why don't you just talk to me about the Georgia we meet here, some of these experiences. Was it bullying you alluded to, or was it just generally not fitting in? And then we'll fast forward in a bit to a very serious moment of bereavement, which you mentioned earlier in the pod, but just talk to me about this moment first. I had a really difficult time in school. A lot of people, you hear it a lot, don't you, when you're towards the end of your academic life, should I say, when people say, oh yeah, don't say that you want to get into a job or you want to do this or you want to do that because you'll be wishing you can go back to school and relive that at some point. It's like, absolutely not. I would rather not ever relive that experience in my life, if I'm honest with you. And it's really funny because you quoted it back and I've just realised when I wrote that, it was something that, looking back, I can almost laugh at it a bit really but I think at the time it was so difficult because I didn't really fit in I wasn't someone who I would say middle school was probably my most difficult time because I did go through quite a lot of bullying I struggled quite a lot in terms of fitting in and feeling like I was fitting into a particular group and then in high school I would refer to myself as a group hopper (laughs) so I was the type and he would go from one group of friends to another and then I would jump around because I never really felt like I fitted into any of them you know my first year I had a group of friends that were very academic and very I guess what they would call the nerdy group actually felt that I was intelligent but not in the sense that they were you know I wasn't kind of into algebra and I wasn't into history and all this so I didn't really fit into that group in my second year I was with the kids that were like oh yeah I'm cool because I'm different and I'm unique and those types of kids and I wasn't confident enough to hang around with them and then the third year I was friends with a group of people that were troublemakers and the naughty kids and I wasn't naughty enough to hang around with them I wasn't as rebellious enough to be with them I always felt like yeah I was constantly hopping from one group of friends to another because I didn't really feel like I fitted in and I think really looking back it was just a confidence thing I lost a lot of my confidence in middle school I I didn't really feel like I I fitted in as I say I, I didn't really have a group of friends that I could really say okay this is where I feel like I'm at home or this is where I feel like I really shine school for me was just keeping my head down and waiting for it to be over really if I'm honest with you my high school experience was a bit better you know I did have some friends and I'm still friends with some of the people that I made friends with in high school so I think it wasn't a lost cause at the end of the day but I definitely didn't feel 
like school was for me really and I think that led to me obviously not doing very well in my exams and maybe struggling quite a lot at that point with my confidence and who I was as a person and my identity so in school definitely felt that and then it wasn't until I went to college that I really started to gain my confidence and now you can't shut me up someone's like please just leave me alone like two of my friends in the last few weeks have said to me oh it must be really difficult to work um, from home for you because you're such a sociable person and I was like oh okay because no one's really said that to me before because when I was in school I wasn't that person so I feel like I'm now the person I was always meant to be if you understand what I'm saying like I feel like now my true personality is there I've become who I was always really meant to be but it's taken a long time for me to get to that point where I feel confident enough to just be me and to just understand that you don't have to fit into a box you don't have to fit a mold and school is just a tiny little part of your life. It was during your last few months of your A-levels in May 2013 that you were swept up into a nightmare I wouldn't wish on anyone. Your younger brother Elliot died suddenly and tragically from a freak accident in school completely shattering your world and I'm sure your family's world. If you could, pal, just tell me a bit about the events leading up to Elliot's passing when he did pass away and the aftermath. I lost my brother in 2013 and I was, I was actually in the last year of my college course. So I was doing creative media and I was in a position where it was towards the end of my coursework where I was like finishing my coursework and stuff. It all felt like it happened very suddenly, but then it was actually over a period of, I think it must have been a month, all of the events started to build up. So my brother had been involved in an accident at school where a group of boys had bundled him and I don't think it was any, not malicious they just were messing about jumping on people mm, horseplay yeah and if anyone into this who their kids are doing this stuff please just tell them not to because you don't realize how dangerous it can be so a bunch of boys bundled him at school they realized he was in a lot of pain and they realized he must have broken something so they phoned an ambulance ambulance comes and collects him and my mum goes to the hospital and they do an x-ray and say he's broken his collarbone and I think obviously I'm not a medical professional so apologies if there's some bits of this that are not 100% accurate but I think with the collarbone usually I think it either breaks inwards or out Outwards. basically his collarbone had broken the opposite way to how it usually breaks what they usually do with the collarbone is they just leave it to fix itself really and for the bone to fuse back together but he'd been to a few x-rays and then over a matter of weeks it became quite apparent that the issue was not something that could just be fixed by itself it needed an operation so he was booked in to have an operation went in to have this operation that was explained or was explained to me as something that was quite routine or it was not something that was as serious as it became then after he'd had his operation or during his operation sorry there had been quite a serious bleed where a vein had adhered itself to the bone and then it had, during the operation it had basically come away I think and then there'd been this significant bleed so they'd fixed it during the operation and he was in intensive care maybe I think it must have been a few days and then was moved to a kind of high dependency ward and then I think all in all he must have been in hospital maybe for under two weeks and I just remember at that point obviously we knew it was quite serious but maybe just assuming that things were going to be okay and that it was something that he could get through and that our family could get through and we were visiting him very regularly so my mum was staying with him at hospital and then I think at one point my mum and dad swapped and then we were visiting him on a kind of day-to-day basis I can remember it's really weird I can remember like the songs that were on the radio at that point because we were 
Oh, so much driving to the hospital. I can remember like certain songs. I can remember the drive there and what we passed and what we saw because it was such a regular occurrence for two weeks. We would regularly be going and visiting him. At one point, it was like, okay, we think he can come home now. And he came home and he was home for maybe like two days. And then in the evening, he started complaining about a pain in his shoulder. And obviously, that's around the area he had the operation, but it was on the opposite arm. You know, none of us medical professionals, we didn't know at that point what was happening and then suddenly he started complaining of this pain was walking around and stuff and then he just collapsed and very quickly realised that he was having some medical emergency. My mum started doing CPR on him. I was the one that phoned for the ambulance. So I phoned the ambulance and was on the phone to them. And then they arrived and said that he was in cardiac arrest. He was rushed to hospital. So at that point, he was, I believe, still alive. He was rushed to the hospital. It was just, you know, I can remember it now. It's really strange. I can remember all these really small details that have come back to me in the last year or so, because I feel like, and obviously we'll, we'll get onto that, but you go into to this stage of almost like being numb to it and a little bit I talk about it kind of very matter of fact and it's not because it doesn't hurt me but I remove myself a little bit from it I guess and almost see it as an observer really so we were taken to the hospital in another vehicle following the ambulance and then we arrived we were taken into a family room and I can still remember this really small cold family room there was a wheelchair on on the back it said departures lounge and I still remember it to this day because I was like why is there a wheelchair that says departures lounge in the family room where most people are going to be there because their family member is either dying or dead you know what I mean and I remember my mum kicking up a fuss about it at the time and they had to remove it but I remember all these little details of this room and sitting there and it felt like we were there for quite some time but I think all in all it was probably like an hour and then they came back at one point they thought he was reacting well to the treatment and it sounded like it might be a more of a positive outcome and very quickly we realised it was very serious and then they came back and they said unfortunately we weren't able to save him and he basically had a massive bleed so it was something that was just completely out of the blue no one was expecting it it's something that you can't really put it into words until it happens to you because I remember being in that room and I've written about it a bit before as well but I don't think I've really spoken about it or not the way that I'm speaking to you about it now is when I remember being in that room and the feelings of just almost like not wanting it to be true and it's almost like an out-of-body experience because you always see yourself people always talk about it but there's this moment where when you find out someone really close to you has died people react in very different ways but a lot of the time they react in this way that's almost like they don't realize it's them and it's really difficult to explain it but I've heard a, a lot of people have been through something very similar when they just collapse to the floor and they start almost like screaming or crying or reacting in a certain way and they almost hear themselves it is that out-of-body experience and you're going who the hell is that or like what is going on and actually you realize it's you and you're the one that's reacting to that it just feels as though you're watching an episode of EastEnders or something it feels like this really weird situation where this can't be my life this can't be real I'm not living this and that is my reaction to it was like the first few days were like this cannot be real life it was so bizarre and to just you don't realize how awful it is until you have to live it those first few weeks after his passing how did you try to grieve and process it you said in your article that you began to have panic attacks doing simple tasks like getting on a bus and you said to me off air that you became quite a recluse for a couple of years could you talk about this period of your life if you could for the listeners and these experiences 
I obviously reacted to it in a way that looking back, thing is, there's no right way to grieve. Do you know what I mean? There is no booklet that says this is the way to grieve in a healthy way or this is the way to not grieve. Do you know what I mean? There is no set process to it. And so I reacted to it in a way that I could at the time, basically. My reaction to it was very much, one, this can't be happening. This isn't my life. This must be some kind of dream. Two, I was absolutely terrified of everything. Terrified that I was going to die. Terrified that when of my family members were going to die terrified that something awful was also the worst thing in the world has just happened and you're terrified that something else equally awful is going to happen so you're in this state of complete shock and also high alert for weeks afterwards which is probably why you then struggle with anxiety and panic attacks because you're constantly on edge really is how I felt about it anyway was I was constantly living in this state of surely this can't be real you're almost like waiting for something else to happen which is just really strange those initial weeks where you're dealing with funerals, you're dealing with having to tell family members and friends and different people. You know, obviously I had to phone my college to tell them that I wasn't going to be in because I'd lost my brother. And then having to explain that to people over and over again, it's just a very traumatic thing to have to go through. It's exhausting. Yeah, exactly. That is not the only way to explain the first year of grief is absolutely exhausting because you're constantly, one, living in this high state of alert and feel like you're waiting for something, but there is no conclusion because that's it. That person's gone. There's you know you can't turn back time you can't relive that you can't change the outcome of what's happened and I think that's why it's so difficult I went through this stage of just trying to control what I could control a lot of the time it was like okay I'm not gonna leave my house I'm not gonna do this because I can't control that outside of my little remit outside of my area I can't control any of that stuff I very much went into shutdown mode so I would say for the first two years after my brother died I did become a bit of a recluse I no longer had the support system that I had in college because obviously I just finished my course so I didn't really have that I would say that I did lose quite a few friends because I started to push people away and I think people were finding it really difficult because they couldn't relate to what I was going through so it's very difficult for you to talk to someone and really be there for someone if you don't know exactly what they're going through but I realized looking back that actually that's fine you don't have to have been through that loss to support someone through grief what you just need to be able to do is, is listen and just say to them I'm here the shoe was on the other foot recently because my friend lost her dad to my best friend I was in this situation where I was like oh my god trying to remember what I went through and what I needed in those early stages because it was really strange to be in a position where I was then supporting my friend through it and actually realizing that there were things that I wanted to say or felt I couldn't say or do you know what I mean so I realised what my friends probably were going through at that point, not knowing how to support me or how to be there for me. So, yeah, I definitely pushed people away. I was very much like, OK, there's a control issue there, really. Is it like, OK, I can control the stuff within my little space, but actually outside of it, I have no control. And I think I remember having quite a few panic attacks when I went to university. So I tried to get out of the house and obviously I would go to lectures and I would do stuff. Even, you know, getting on the bus sometimes or just being in that space was really overwhelming because for the first year, I just felt like nothing was real. It was really bizarre, the disassociation, this idea of nothing can be real at this moment because this can't be happening to us. That was my life for two years. I wouldn't go out, I wouldn't see people, I wasn't very sociable. It's really interesting because lockdown obviously put me back to that place, I feel, or reminded me of 
what I went through. I was almost like prepared for lockdown because of those two years that I went through because I felt like I'm now this really sociable person who really wants to be around people and really wants to make connections with lots of people. And I've got quite a few friends. And I think that looking back, I literally had no one at that point, you know, apart from a few close friends and, you know, my best friend who was very supportive at the time. I really felt like I was quite alone in it and didn't have that support and realised now that I did, but I maybe was just pushing people away and just felt really lonely because I didn't know anyone at that point who'd been through what we were going through. The turning point for your mental health, Georgia, was when you began to connect with other people who had lost siblings, even to a similar age to you. Do you want to talk about this moment and the sibling bereavement retreat you went on as well? That for me was life changing, if I'm honest. I know it sounds a bit dramatic, but um, that was the real turning point for me because being in a position where for the first two years, I mean, I was part of Facebook groups and part of you know little community groups, but I really felt like to give a bit of background into it, there is a charity called the Compassionate Friends, and the Compassionate Friends have they basically set up this sector of their charity which is supporting bereaved siblings, and the idea is that they do these retreats every year. So so this year they were meant to do two but obviously thanks to corona that didn't happen but they usually do at least one a year and what they do is they have like lots of siblings go away for a weekend brief siblings and really just spend a weekend in a space where they can connect with each other they can do tasks they can do little activities but the whole idea is that you're sharing an experience and coming away from your everyday life to spend time with people who understand what you're going through and it was really crazy because I remember at the time I'm someone who sometimes I find it really difficult to reach out and let people know when I'm having a difficult time and I think it's probably a bit of a British thing as well isn't it that whole like stoic you know oh I'm not not struggling I don't need any help I'm fine we underplay a lot of things as well yeah yeah exactly and I think for me as well my work became my coping mechanism I feel like my work has helped me so much because it's made me more sociable it's pushed me out my comfort zone it was a distraction from my grief as well when I heard about this retreat I really wanted to go but there was a part of me that was like basically the first one that they did was in a Quakers retreat and my initial feeling I'm not a religious person myself I have a lot of respect for people that are religious because I think it's really interesting and I sometimes wish that I was more into religion but I saw that it was a Quakers retreat and I guess my initial feeling was okay this is probably going to be a room full of people sitting around in a circle crying and it's going to be like really quite emotionally draining and it's going to be quite full-on because I'm someone who is very much like I deal with my problems by having a joke and being a bit silly and being a bit I guess removing myself from it so the idea of sitting in a circle with a bunch of people talking about grief it sounded really scary to me so initially I was like okay I don't know if I want to do this but eventually thankfully I got myself to that position where I was going to go and also it was the first time I think the first time of anything is just so difficult because one you don't know who you're going to meet you don't know what you're going to speak about you don't know how it goes so once I'd done my first one I was like wow okay I absolutely love it it was the first time in my life where I'd been in a room full of people who I didn't have to explain myself to because I feel like especially as time goes on people assume that it gets easier and in some aspects it does but also your life is forever changed you're never going to be the person that you were before because 
your life is always going to be changed by your grief and it's always going to be molded and there's always going to be difficulties you know anniversaries are really difficult Christmas is difficult all these parts of the year and that's every year that's not just going to stop one day where you're just going to be like right I'm fine I'm not grieving anymore I'm over it type of thing that is something that you're going to have to spend the rest of your life dealing with it's daunting but it's something that when you love someone and you you have someone that you connect with that doesn't just go do you know what I mean even after they're gone you're shaped by that and you're shaped by your experience and to be in a room full of other siblings who get where you're coming from is just such an amazing experience and I just found that so beneficial because I had been for a period of time where I didn't know anyone who had had that type of loss at such a young age I've met so many friends and so many people that I've just connected with because of that retreat and because of the groups that I've become part of and I just can't recommend it enough I think it's so important especially when you're young and you don't feel like you're able to connect with people or you're able to meet people who understand what you're going through I just think it's so important we don't talk about death and grief enough really do we I mean we talk about it more now I would say than when I lost my brother seven years ago but I still think sometimes it's a bit of a taboo subject and young people are like nah I don't want to talk about death because I'm invincible and you know people just don't want to think about it because it's quite morbid and so to be in a room full of people that get where you're coming from and have that experience I think for me was really really beneficial. We often say a lot on this pod Georgia that grief is more stigmatized than mental health and I think that's definitely something you've just echoed there. I understand you and Elliot shared a love of playing video games and one game in particular The Last of Us which until its sequel came out was my favorite game of all time. Some people might not understand how a game can help someone with grief. Why don't you tell the listeners about how it helped you and Elliot and then just tell me a bit about some of your other favourite memories with him and what kind of a person he was. So I wrote a blog post about this. I think it was uh, beginning of the year. Got such a great reaction from it, if I'm honest. Loads of people from work, loads of people online shared it and were messaging me afterwards and saying just how much they loved it. And it really touched me because I remember when I was writing it at the time thinking no one's going to get what I'm on about here. People are just not going to understand what I'm talking about. But something that myself and my brother connected a lot over was video games. We had an Xbox and we would spend a lot of our time after school playing video games Skyrim Call of Duty my brother loved Minecraft you know that all these games that we would play after school and college and it was just our way of connecting really because I think that even when you're playing video games you're chatting to each other or you're talking about other stuff that's happened during the day or you're talking about different things so I always felt like we connected through our love of video games it for us it was something that and I think a lot of siblings actually you fight and you argue but you have something that's a common ground really and I think video games a lot of people say to me that's something that they always connect with their siblings about so even if they literally are tearing it at each other's throats and they're like fighting each other and they'll always end up coming together when they play a video game so I wanted to write about the experience that I had because when my brother died obviously I stopped playing video games because I almost found it too painful to something that we used to do like a trigger yeah basically it was really triggering because it was like I don't want to do and I don't want to watch like there were certain things that we used to watch together like we loved Derek Ricky's races Derek and I couldn't watch that afterwards and we loved Russell Howard who was, like, was one of his favourite comedians so I couldn't watch anything with Russell Howard in after that I was like I'm really sorry Russell I love you but I can't watch it and so for a while that was what it was was I was avoiding anything that would remind me of the time that we spent together and almost the good memories which is a bad thing obviously you don't want to avoid that but I think at first it's so painful to think about that because it's recognising what you've lost 
And I didn't want to recognise that at that point. So about two years into my journey with grief, I decided that I was going to buy myself a PlayStation. Just randomly, I was like, I'm just going to buy a PlayStation because... I almost wanted to reconnect in a sense. I wanted something that could almost reconnect us and something that we used to do together. I brought a PlayStation. I think it came with The Last of Us, but I remember someone already telling me what a great game it was and saying, I think you'll really like it because I was really into The Walking Dead at that point and into zombies and stuff. So The Last of Us was the first game that I played after Elliot died. So that was about two years after because it came out the year that he died. So it was 2013, the first game came out. Anyone who doesn't know about The Last of Us, it explores lots of different issues that I was actually going through at the time. So grief, the main character, he obviously loses a relative very early on in the game. And so you have an understanding of how grief has affected him and his connection with the characters throughout the game. It's like reading a book, really. A video game is very similar. I always say to people when people don't really understand video games, I say to them, what's your favourite book? Or what's your favourite film? Why is it that you connect with that film or that book? And I think a lot of the time, then people start to realise, oh, okay, that makes sense. Because because The Last of Us is more like a film, I feel, than it is a game sometimes. Because, yeah, okay, you're playing the game, but it's like a story. You're going through this character's emotions and you're going through this character's journey. And the first game, I think it was a wake-up call for me, really, because it deals with issues that I think I hadn't previously dealt with. And it was almost this opportunity to then start to think about the way that I felt about things and my own experience of grief because of the character's experience in the game it's really difficult to explain it to someone who maybe doesn't play video games because it can be very life-changing it can be something that really changes your mindset and changes the way that you see things and I think you know as I say I was still going through quite a difficult period of time one it was something to do but two it reconnected me to my love of gaming and, and something that obviously myself and Elliot used to do together but then also it was something that was so life-changing in the sense that it was the first time that I'd seen my own experience almost like reflected in a character and in a video game, which that's why people love it so much, isn't it? It's just this really like groundbreaking game that explored issues and discussions that no one had really explored before. So I'm just a massive fan of that video game, basically. And it really helped me through a difficult time in my life and I'm not ashamed to say that I've booked myself to get a Last of Us tattoo as well so that's how much of a super fan I am I'm getting myself a tattoo inspired by the Last of Us anyone that wants to talk about mental health and gaming I'm like I'm there because all you ever hear is negative stuff about video gaming don't you, you hear about addiction you hear about all these issues that people can want to focus on and actually you forget that something like the last of us just brings people together i met one of my friends you know i've met friends through the, our love of the last of us which is just bizarre isn't it really but it's so important and it's something that as i say i connected with my brother over video games and so to get back into gaming i think was really important and something that i've really enjoyed I think if we were to talk about The Last of Us Part 2, we could be here for another three hours. So I won't go into that. As you've got older and you've navigated life without Elliot Georgia, what do you think you've learned along the way? Have there been times where you've had a really big achievement and you wish you could have told him about it? And, and how do you carry his memory with you now? It's something that I think with grief, people assume that it's something that, because maybe their own experience, they feel it's something that you can get over in a certain amount of time. And you almost put a time period on it. So you say, oh, it's been seven years now. That's quite a long time. So therefore you should be over it or you should be 
coping with it better. There are so many different triggers and so many different things. And when you think about it, I don't remember a life without my brother. Before my brother died, I didn't remember a life without him. I was very young. I was only three years old when my brother was born. So I didn't remember a life without him. And therefore, that's how I explain it to people is I say to them, imagine that you don't remember a life without your sibling. And then suddenly you have to live the rest of your life knowing that you're not going to see them again. And that is really, really difficult. And there's so many different points in your life. You know, since my brother died, I've got my apprenticeship with the BBC. I graduated, you know, we had a graduation ceremony where we had gowns and caps. And, you know, we had all our family and friends there. There's all these moments in your life that you would usually share with your sibling or with your relative and when they're not there you can't share that and that's really really difficult and I know that that will be something that will be a constant in my life the day if I do you know the day that I get married or you know having children I know that I'm not going to have like blood relative nieces and nephews so you almost like you grieve for the life that you think that you could have had you grieve for like the fact that I know that obviously my brother might have got married he might have had children he might have gone on to have a really successful job in a certain sector or he might have gone on to I know he wanted to be a police officer you know I think about maybe he would have gone to do that or would he have gone to do something else when he was a kid he did this thing where you had to draw what you wanted to be when you were older and drew a chef and then he drew a man with about 700 kids like him with 700 children it was like literally all these little kids next to him he was like yeah I want to be a dad cheated by the dozen three yeah literally which you know I guess a 16 year old wanting to be a dad I guess people would be like what but for some reason he just really one of those people who loved family family was a massive thing for him when I think about it I'm obviously not going to be able to have nieces and nephews unless if I have a partner who has siblings but I think that sometimes that's also difficult because you're grieving for what you think you should have or what you could have had as well as the life that you've lost previously you know I always say when you have a the loss of a sibling you lose your past you lose your present and you lose your future because there are so many memories that I have of my younger years that I shared with my brother that no one else would understand because it was something that we shared and something that we went through that's really really difficult and then obviously you lose your present and then as I say you lose your future you lose what you could have had and what you should have had a lot's happened in my life since then and it's been seven years and as I say I've got my job at the BBC which I never expected to happen if I'm honest really didn't expect it worked really hard to get that position get myself into the industry it's something that looking back I think really would have loved to share that moment with him and I would have loved to have had him at my graduation and there's moments where I've struggled a bit the one person that I would have liked to speak to about it is him I feel like that is probably the most difficult part that you have these moments in your life these really big events that happen you can't share it with that person and I think that is the most difficult thing when people start to realize that actually you're forever changed and your life is basically living with your grief as well as living your life that's when people start to understand it a bit better because they're like oh okay yeah that makes sense yeah you don't realize until you've been through it you don't realize just how much of an impact that loss has on your life and the fact that you have to grow without that person but you'll always be affected by it you know what I mean you'll always have a part of you that feels like something's missing and that's okay that's all right to feel that way I've got two questions left. The first one I want to ask is about the first time you spoke publicly about all of this, Georgia, which was on a Beyond Day episode, which you presented yourself. Do you want to just talk a bit about the episode, how the opportunity came about? And looking back, was that a big moment in your life? And what was the feedback you received? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. I did a radio interview before, which is the reason how I got into Three Counties. I spoke about what I'd been through and, and my grief, but not to the level that I did for that Beyond Today episode. I mean, that was the first time I really delved into it. And when you listen to it, Matthew Price, I mean, he's an amazing presenter. It came from a conversation, really. It was really strange. A lot of the conversations that when I end up telling people about what's happened to my brother, it usually comes from like a really random moment. So someone on our team saw a picture of me and my brother on my screensaver. And he was like, oh, who's that? Who are those kids? Because it was one when we were younger. And I was like, oh, this is a bit awkward. I was like, that's my brother. I said, he's no longer with us. And sometimes people react to it in like a really strange way where it's like they kind of either move the conversation on or they don't, they almost feel like they don't want to upset you. or They feel bad, really, for mentioning that you've lost your sibling. I always have to say to people, actually, I would prefer it if you do talk about my brother. I'm not going to get upset if you start saying, oh, what was your brother's favourite thing to do? Or what was your favourite memory of your brother? Or do you know what I mean? Can't be taboo, can it? Exactly. And I would rather you ask. There's nothing more hurt than someone just moving the conversation on when you've just told them something quite upsetting you know you've told them you really opened up and shown your vulnerability there's nothing more upsetting than someone just moving the conversation on because it's really hurtful do you know what I mean you've just like opened yourself up to someone and then they're just like moving on so yeah that would be difficult and I think in that situation the person reacted to it in such a wonderful way they were just like really inquisitive and asking about it and really wanting to understand more one of the producers then was like I think we should do something on it I think we should do an episode I was like do you know what yeah I would love to really like to do that and so we just decided really I mean the editor you know it wasn't newsy as such so I think actually it was quite a big risk for him to take really but he wanted to do it and I think his mum had been through something similar he recently lost a sibling that's the thing about sibling loss is no matter what age you lose your sibling it's the most devastating thing like it's a really difficult thing to go through he was like yeah let's do something on it I think it would be really really important we decided that we were just gonna do this episode where we delve a little bit deeper into the impact of sibling loss and what happens when you go through that type of bereavement and the effect on it and obviously Matthew Price opens up about his own loss as well in the podcast which is really takes you back when you listen to it and a few people mentioned that to me but I think the one thing that came from it was just the reaction like I got so many nice messages about it I got people in the BBC message me and say I've been through something similar thank you for talking about it I had a girl in America message me who had listened to it I don't know how she listened to it, but uh, somehow it had got onto a forum or something and she'd listened to it and she messaged me and was like, I listened and I lost my brother recently and it really affected me and was really helpful to me. That's the whole reason why we made it really is because it's something that people still don't really talk about. And seven years ago, I remember I used to go on YouTube and Google like sibling loss and try and find some video or some bit of content that would try and help me feel a little bit less lonely. And there wasn't a lot out there at that time. So for me, I felt like making that podcast, that's something that will hopefully be there for a long, long time. And when people Google that or they want to maybe learn a bit more about their grief and their loss, it's there for them and it's available. That for me was so therapeutic because just chatting to Matthew, Matthew coming to my house and chatting to my mum. And you know what I mean? It was just this really wonderful experience and something that I, you know, I'll never forget. 
And just finally, Georgia, looking back on this period of your life, how these experiences shaped the Georgia I'm speaking to right now? And if there's anyone listening to this pod and might be grieving, what message or advice would you give them from your experience? I would say that everything that I've been through up to this point, I think, has made me who I am today. I'm not perfect. (laughs) I'll be the first one to admit that I'm not perfect. But I feel like those events in my life have, in some senses, you're given this moment, right, where you can either find a positive way to deal with it, or you can let it crush you and you can let it destroy you. And I feel like at first, obviously, I found it really difficult. And it was really awful. And I felt just completely lost. But over time, I realised that there's many things that going through trauma actually can make you a better person. And obviously, no one wants to go through trauma, you know what I mean? If you could basically make sure that you don't go through it, you would. But you can't. We don't have a time machine. We can't go back. We can't change what's happened to us. So we have the option to have to deal with that and to have to find a positive thing to take from it. For me, my positive was that I feel like now I have a lot more empathy. I have a lot more understanding. I connect a lot more with people, especially if they've been through something similar or just any type of trauma, really. I feel like I connect with people on a more human level than maybe I would if I didn't go through what I've been through. And actually, I feel like it one makes me a better journalist because I have this experience that I can then bring to the table and I feel like people open up a lot more to you you're not just the person who's trying to dig into their life and find out about them and be quite nosy you know I mean you're someone who almost understands a little bit about what they're going through I feel like I'm probably more emotionally intelligent in the sense that I have more of an understanding of when I know someone's struggling everyone deals with things differently but I have maybe an understanding of how I would feel in that situation I can put you can see beyond the mask Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like I'm a lot less judgmental as well. So someone can really kind of like be a bit of a pain in the ass. But in the back of my mind, I'm still thinking, actually, they could be struggling with something or they could be going through something and that maybe that's why they're hitting out a bit. So I guess I'm almost like a bit more philosophical in a sense. I have a better understanding of people's emotions and what they might be going through and how best to approach it. So I feel like that's built up who I am today. And, you know, there's obviously things I would say that I've missed out on and things that looking back, you know, obviously losing my brother at such a young age, 19, that's the age where you're going out and you're drinking and you're meeting up with your mates and you're moving out and you're doing all this big stuff going to university looking back I'm like "Mm, you know maybe I did miss out on a few things and maybe losing my brother at such a pivotal age you know I remember at the time all my friends were going out dating and they were going out to parties and all this and I wasn't doing that I wasn't doing that stuff but actually everything that happens in our life leads us to where we are today and that's how I see it you know when I get rejected for something or when something else happens in my life that maybe actually in the grand scheme of things I can think about it in a more logical way way just on the last thing as well if people are listening and they're going through what I was going through the advice that I would give them is it's so important to just reach out and to speak to people and I know sometimes it's really difficult I really struggled because as I say I pushed myself into my work and that was my way of coping with my grief and do all this stuff so to keep myself busy so I didn't have to think about the grief actually I found that when I had time off I really struggled with it because having time off meant that I had to actually think about my grief and think about what I was going through and what I was struggling with it's so much better to just reach out and be honest with people and to say to someone hey 
I'm struggling at the moment because it's my relative's anniversary or around Christmas time, it's really difficult because everyone's with their families. And I realise that obviously I can't be with my sibling. I know that when I was really struggling with my grief, to hear someone else talking about it openly really helped me. You know, listen to Griefcast and, you know, you hear the people on there and they're just so honest and open. And to talk about something that has previously been such a taboo subject and now everyone is talking a bit more openly about it can be really helpful. Yeah, that's the advice that I would give is reach out, talk to people that have been through similar experiences, but have your support network and have your group of friends. And if you are struggling, let them know because they actually could be really beneficial and they could be really helpful. And people want to know when you're struggling so that they can help you. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Georgia for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. I hope this pod has been helpful for anyone who's gone through or has experienced grief in their lives. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling generous, write us a review and rating on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.